If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. Hi, Marleya. Hi, Patrice. Hi. Courtney's <laughs> like, over there sermoning. Courtney's got like a scotch boner or something. <laughs> I'm over here speaking Gaelic. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, I saw on Duolingo that you were studying Gaelic. Yeah, well, oh. I did it one day and stopped. <laughs> Is it hard? It sounds yeah, hard. hard. It does seem like it would be really hard. It's, it's very it's kind of counterintuitive, like, as a language, doesn't it seem? Guttural a little bit. It's not. Yeah, I don't know. I got this though. La Forig. Well, tell us what you used to do. Yeah, yeah, because I tried to make these people sophisticate their palates (laughs) around here. Patrice is sophisticated. (laughs) She's drinking hers. Just kidding. Okay, as I've mentioned many times, going to Scotland, trying to make myself love scotch. And it's working. That is is really. I remember like going to Japan and saying like, I'm going to eat sushi when I'm in Japan. It's like it works to have the incentive. Um, There is an incentive. sushi now. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I've always been a whiskey drinker, as we know, my my Tennessee Squire, Jack Daniels background, (laughs) but not scotch. And so I've been trying over the last, you know, six, eight months, different scotches. And I tried. Glen Fittage right now, 12 years, my favorite, probably because it's like, I don't know. It's not as smoky. Let's just say this is Lephoric. It's made on the island of Ile. And I learned about it from watching Men in Kilts, which if anybody's an Outlander fan, it's uh, yeah, it's um, Sam Hewen and Graham McTavish who are on the show. They drive around Scotland in kilts and do fun things. And one of them is go, they go to this distillery. Oh, nice. So you learn about how it's made and it was really cool to see it. So I decided to purchase some. It's about $60 a bottle and it is very smoky because yes. what you learn when you watch that show, that episode, or if you know anything about scotch, they make it, they use peat moss that mm-hmm. they burn as part of the process. And so that's what this tastes like, kind of like a campfire. Tastes like ashes. <laughs> just like a campfire. Yeah. Tastes, like, almost tastes like so burning. much that I want like roasted marshmallows <laughs> yeah. now. I want like something to like <laughs> wipe the taste off of Marlea my mouth. hated it. And the person in this room who loves campfires the most hates this right. drink. I don't drink campfires. There's a whole thing about that. Like don't drink your campfire. It's a saying. <laughs> it's, it's a saying don't drink your campfire. <laughs> so yeah, this comes with a little like history of... um. You know, Elay, it's been open since 1815. And it looks like they do a little thing kind of like I have with Jack Daniels um, that they you can get one. Uh Oh, but theirs is a little more. You get one square foot of the island. That's a big deal. A member. It's a big and it's deal. an island. So it's square island. footage is mm-hmm. <laughs> limited by design. So, yeah, it's kind of like a little loyalty thing. It's a cool little pamphlet that they have. So if you're. In the Scotch, oh business. my god, I can check still out smell Lephoric. it. Oh. It's L A P H R O A I G. Disgusting. L A P H R O A I G. They will not be advertising. <laughs> but Patrice and I oh like gosh. it. You add just a dash yes. of water, as I've also been learning. I'm going to go through a Scotch experience before I go to a distillery, but 
My brother um, would be so proud of open me. Open up a little bit of that. the, just a little, down, a little bit of water. And yeah, we were sipping it. It was delicious. But that was our pregame. <laughs> yes. I sipped moonshine instead. I was yes. like, you have this back. I'm going to get my Bigfoot moonshine. Oh, my gosh. And y'all, if you're... Talk a- about classy. <laughs> it's it's well, pretty we- much at the same level as this. <laughs> we very much said, though, that, you know, yeah. you Bigfoot, can go buy your square foot of your mm-hmm. Scottish island over there. Mm-hmm. And over here, we're going to, like, sell you you like a square foot and we're gonna call you this is be your peepaw and meemaw <laughs> square foot subscribe now and you can get a square inch of patrice's yard right. <laughs> and we'll call you flag. we'll call you meemaw whatever your name is mm-hmm. or peepaw whatever your name is it's a it's a well-earned title mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. It's an, it's an honorific it's honorific thank mm-hmm. you yeah yeah <laughs> get a like, free hey. shot of bigfoot moonshine too <laughs> yep we'll sit out on our well no. i was like we'll sit out on our rocking chair and talk to you shit we won't we're not gonna be here, yeah. not gonna be here. <laughs> um what was i gonna say oh if you are a patron Please go look at the uh, Patreon page for the Strange South because I'm going to post Marleya's yuck face. Oh my god, she hated it so bad. <laughs> she sent us after she tried it. It was yeah, it was. Just, so I did go ahead. I said this was just a little to try. I wanted to share. She hated it, but I made a drink. That did not include it. Thankfully, because I was about to phone it in today and just bring this expensive scotch and be like, here's your drink today. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much. And she hated it so much. And I'm so glad I did this. So what I've done today is thanks to our friends and listeners, (laughs) R&R, they were over today for brunch and taught me a term I did not know about. And I don't know how I didn't. But that's what I'm going to name this drink today because it's March. It's like. 30 degrees outside. We've already had what we thought spring was coming, and now it's ice and pollen at the same time, which mm-hmm. is just very unfair. So, <laughs> yellow snow. <laughs> it is. This is called a liquor jacket. This is going to be called the liquor jacket because it's cold. You need a liquor to warm you up. And it is, I'm using some syrups that was gifted by another friend and listener, Mary. They're called Portland syrups, and it's a Marion Berry syrup. So it's a Marion Berry, <laughs> Marion Berry, not the former mayor. <laughs> Bourbon, Mary. fresh lemon juice, um, club soda, and a cinnamon stick. And this is delicious, <laughs> delicious. And I learned um, that there is a berry that's called Marion. <laughs> I never it's knew the Marion Berry. I never knew there was a Marion Berry. I didn't know until I was a grown. Like when I was a kid, I was Marion Berry was the mayor of DC when I lived in DC. So it was I like remember that just uh-huh. Marion Berry because it was like a scandal ridden. Oh <laughs> yeah, I was like, Coke oh my god, it was all the time. It was like there's nothing that Marion Berry didn't do. Oh, speaking it's of a type Coke. of blueberry, I mean, oh, blackberry. it's a type nice. of blackberry. I'm sorry, it's a type of blackberry. Yes. It oh. was developed by the USDA ARS breeding program in cooperative with the Oregon State with Oregon State University. Oh, it's oh, a red thing. There's cool. the Portland. It's a cross just between two different varieties of blackberries. Well, of course we love it because we love blackberries. So, so yeah, no. it um, for half of blackberries produced in Oregon. There you go, Mary yes. and Barry. opposite S- side of the country. Speaking of cocaine, that's what <laughs> <Patrice> said. <laughs> 
We oh, we're going to talk about we're cocaine. Not. We're today. going to talk f- about something uh, a little bit later on the Patreon. Ooh. Again, if you are not a patron, go ahead and join. You can see my yuck face and you can listen to what our, our limited review of the Cocaine Bear movie, which we finally went to see yeah, in the movie theaters yesterday. Did. So that'll be fun mm-hmm. and there's yeah. opinions i have opinions everybody about has kids opinions. And cocaine and missed opportunities yes. <laughs> <laughs> so patrons wait around for that and uh yeah join if you're not a patron it's easy it's three bucks less less than a starbucks and you get a whole like bonus episode yep every week we're drunker during that one so oh my gosh mm. anyway so uh, i don't listen to them <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and come back for our story do you want more strange south every week we can help you can follow us on facebook instagram and twitter and you can join our facebook fan group fans of the strange south podcast to keep the chat going with our whole creepy community do you have a story idea for us or a story of your own to share email us at stories at the strange south.com Plus, if you join our Patreon, you not only help support the podcast, you get an exclusive bonus episode for every show and a discount on merch. You can find links to all of these things on our website, thestrangesouth.com, along with photos, links, and show notes from every episode, Strange South t-shirts, mugs, and other goodies. See you there. Okay, let's start again. Okay. Oh my God, I can't see you now. Jesus. Oh, don't look at us. Look at the paper. Don't look at okay. us. Ah! Look away. Okay. Look away. Stop. Look at the paper. Okay. <laughs> You're so stubborn. And we're back. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> it is my turn to tell a story, and I'm going to tell the story from Kentucky. James Hatcher was born in Kentucky in 1859. His dad owned a hotel and they were in Pikeville, Kentucky, in Pike County. And it was called the Hatcher House. It was a fairly successful hotel. As far as James goes, the Louisville Courier Journal did a profile of him on his 80th birthday. They called him a monument to rugged individualism. In the same profile, they also lauded him for fussing at farmers to get off government aid and... (laughs) Yeah. Fussing at school children who should have wheelchairs on every bus because they're too lazy to walk. But in what year? <laughs> this well, let's see. This oh. was this was in his 80th birthday oh, okay. profile article. So he it would have been he was born in 1859. So math me. Mm. This would have been the 50s. 30, not 40s. The 40s. Around the 40. Um, and he was like an avid, I should have known this because he was like a, a like anti-New Dealer was like a big Ooh, thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was like anti the New Deal. You bastard. But he does all of this in kind of a, a witticism sort of way. Like he's jovial. Everybody, everybody seems to love him. They call him Uncle Jim all around the town. And by most accounts, even though his politics may be questionable in our eyes, he is still generally like a giving and helping type of guy. His history in, in Pikeville is that, you know, when he was 18, his, his dad already had this hotel and he went into business when he was 18, started warehousing goods off the river, then moved into timber. He was like one of the first people to, he cut like 12,000 acres of timber and 
transported it on the river up to other places, made quite a bit of money doing that. He built a steamboat. He started a coal company. Later, he acted as a contractor. So he had a number of successful business ventures. And at one point was one of the largest individual landholders in Pike County. And eventually he replaced his father's hotel with his own called the James Hatcher Hotel. And he had painters come and paint his favorite sayings on the wall. Most of them had to do with like the virtue of hard work and counting your blessings. And so I wonder how much that he actually did and how much that his helpers actually did. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I mean, he he was he was definitely well looked upon in his town through his entire life. He turned the hotel into sort of like a monument to yesteryear. He was definitely one of those like in the good old days types of guys. Mm -hmm. And the greatest generation. But yes. It included displays of like old baby clothes from from most of it. This stuff was like from his family antique tools he would have to like show people. Oh, this is what people used in the old days. Um, antique furniture and oddly his own coffin for his future death and burial Ooh. on display in his hotel. That's weird. And he, he joked in his Courier Journal article, that profile when he was 80, that he had a woman come one time and ask if she could get into his coffin with him. Uh, and he told her nobody was riding his coattails to heaven. <laughs> she was not welcome. Oh it was a black walnut coffin with white satin inside. And it was funny because James Hatcher, you know, with all this, you know, captain of industry, famous in the town, all this. He was not a, not a married man. Mm -hmm. Not a ladies man. Okay. Had no kids of his own, though he helped raise his nephew's seven kids and put them through school. So, you know, he's not a heel by any means, but he had been married once. So he married Octavia Smith in 1889. And so at that time he was 30, 30. and she was 20. So he was just like enamored with her. He's kind of in the, in the middle of all these business ventures and he's feeling like everything's looking up and his, his life is going great and he's building this fortune and this empire. And they seem to be a really good match. She came from good stock. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, well, I mean, she's 20. Mm -hmm. She's young. Exactly. She's young. You know, she can make a go of it. And they were they were a prosperous and happy couple. So before long, of course, Octavia is pregnant, which is exactly what they want, you know, and they're excited to build their family. So their son, Jacob, is born on January 4th, 1891. They've only been married not even two full years. And unfortunately, as is so often the case in the 1800s, Jacob dies only a few hours after being born. And there's not a whole lot of like original record of what happens next. Some people say Octavia fell into a deep depression and just kind of lost her will to do anything. With the state of healthcare at the time and maternal mortality in the late 1800s was 850 people per 100,000 live births, which is like insanely high. I mean, like right now we're really pissed off because it's 55 per every 100,000 births mm -hmm. and because that's that's unacceptable. Right. But now at the, the way that healthcare was then it was 850. You, you had a, a decent yes. likelihood of dying yeah, because was... of, if not in childbirth. Right. And so it's not unlikely that there were complications uh, from yeah. the birth that assisted in her kind oh, of yeah. wasting away. But for whatever reason, Octavia Hatcher, after having the baby and losing him, fell into a coma 
Um, she was bedridden after not very long and then fell into a coma and was declared dead on May 2nd, 1891 and buried not long after. So what day did the baby? What day was the baby? He was he was born at the beginning of January. Oh, OK. So, so five, it was about four, four months. Yeah. yeah four, four to five months of, of illness. And it was like a continuing illness yeah. where she just continued to get worse and worse. And so nobody was really surprised when she passed. Oh, that. exactly. So oh. many ways. So this, though, is where the best known part of the story comes in and the part that has the fewest original records. People say that after Octavia's funeral, doctors began to be called to a few other folks in town that had also fallen into comas. Mm. And they started to call it a sleeping sickness epidemic. But the thing is, these people would fall into some weird kind of catatonia and then revive again after a few days. And people say that James hears about this weird epidemic of sleeping sickness and goes into a panic because his first thought is, what if oh, shit. this is what Octavia had? What if Octavia wasn't dead? So he asked for an emergency exhumation of the grave, which was granted. So they dug back up the fairly fresh grave. And when they opened the lid... The lining of the casket had been shredded. Oh, my God. God. Octavia's fingers and nails were bloody and torn. Her face was scratched up and contorted. She had awakened from this coma to find herself trapped underground and had struggled and struggled to get out before suffocating to death. This is the story. So James grieved his wife and child, never married again. Which is verified. I mean, absolutely true. I mean, it is true that Octavia Spencer. It is true that Octavia Hatcher died. It is true that she died as some sort of a complication from childbirth, and and that her son died in a day. It is absolutely all like this stuff is verifiable for the most part. Is that he did never bury again? Or he never buried again? He never married again. And he did, he sent a way to have a memorial made. He was so just lost by this loss yeah. that he sent a way to have this memorial made for her grave that is in Italian marble. It's an obelisk with like a big, huge pedestal with like a life size. And this is life size, like her exact height. He took the measurements from her dressmaker and sent them to a sculptor along with these photographs of close-ups of her face. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be in an incredible likeness of his wife. So the statue just stands on this high pedestal over the entire town because her grave was on a hillside that overlooked everything. And she's dressed in finery with a parasol. And it was erected in 1892. And because of its placement, you know, it looked down at the Hatcher Hotel, which James lived right next door to. So he was able to kind of see her all the time. And the baby's grave was like a little wee statue down at the feet. And those are still there, though. Her hand with the parasol has been knocked off like she's one handed now. Mm. But um, those statues are still there. And so I hear this story and I've heard the story for a long time. I've had this one on the docket for like years. And I really wanted to call bullshit on it because I was like, oh, you know, I was like, there's no... I don't know. I, at first, I was thinking about like, okay, I got to debunk this sleeping sickness thing. I got to see, you know, is yeah. there anything behind this? Because a lot of the stories say she was bitten by a tsetse fly. That's what I was thinking. Which is, but the sleeping sickness from the tsetse fly is African 
trypanosomiasis. It's that fly is in sub-Saharan Africa. It's not here. In, it's in a Kentucky. it's a wasting disease. And her husband was like he did imports and stuff, but it's just extremely i mean it's practically impossible like those were not and are not found in the u.s right. those flies so it's almost certainly not that in 1891 so i was looking at all these records i'm like okay so kentucky oddly in 1891 at the time of her death was between epidemics at the moment <laughs> which is you know i mean Sounds because right. because it was the south you've talked about yellow fever you've talked about spanish flu cholera was like rampant horrible through the whole 1800s in waves that's the one that's through like your water, right? Like mm-hmm. cholera is is another one infected. of those dying by poop. Yes, mm-hmm. but you it's know, a bacteria though, not like a virus. Yeah, it? I think so. Yeah, I think I cholera think so. is a bacterial. Yeah. It's in the, yeah, it's in the water supply. Yeah. But none of those have coma as a primary symptom, and none of those either was really a strong showing at the time in Kentucky. There was a sleeping sickness epidemic in the U.S. and Europe in 1915 to 1926, but that was not the African tsetse fly parasitic sleeping sickness. This was called encephalitis lethargica, and it was characterized by a sore throat, a fever. You would go into lethargy and then fall into like a catatonic state, and you would even get to the point of having like muscle rigidity with this because like your brain stem is inflamed mm-hmm. and most people who get this though die of respiratory failure because their neurological function stops working correctly and those that live are likely to remain in that catatonic catatonic state it like indefinitely and i don't know if you ever saw there was a movie in 1990 called awakenings that was a robin williams movie if you've never seen it, you should. It was a good uh, movie. Yeah. Um, but it's based on the the real life story of a doctor named Oliver Sacks. I have one of his books at home. He had been working with patients who had previously had encephalitis lethargica and who were living in a home because they couldn't function mm. outside because they continued to live in this lethargic state. And he had given them a Parkinson's drug. The L-Dopa was a, was a new thing at the time. And he was like, I'm going to try this. And so he kind of secretly dosed them with this Parkinson's drug. And they all became themselves again and like jumped back to life. But it only lasted for a short amount of time. Oh, Anyways, wow. that was just a fascinating oh, story. And I love yeah. that story always. People still, scientists still don't know what caused encephalitis lethargica. They don't know why it suddenly stopped happening in 1927. It just stopped. And so they think maybe it was an autoimmune response to an enterovirus or a bacteria like strep. Um, there's, but there's, there's no evidence that there was any studied epidemic presence of encephalitis in Kentucky in the 1800s. There were some horses that had it in Virginia in the 1830s. But it's still not so much the problem of what her illness was as it is this recovery part of like there were other people in the town who had a coma like illness and then recovered fast enough for people to think, oh, she just died. Maybe she had this. There's because all of these things that they could have had, they don't you don't just pop right back up out of these comas. You know, Mm -hmm. it just doesn't happen. These death like sleeps. You don't just quickly start feeling better again, which is what the story said happened. So then I was like, okay, well, I kind of do call bullshit on the how they decided to exhume the body. And then I started looking for records of the exhumation. 
And there are none. There are no records of James talking about the particularities of his wife's death or no news reports about her being exhumed, the circumstances of her death and burial beyond the childbirth. However, lots and lots and lots of locals, and they say, you know, quote unquote, local historians, depending on what their training is, is the quote. They believe the the story of the buried alive. And you know, so I'm still sitting there thinking, like, I am sure that this lady was not buried alive. You know, this was just a story that was attached. I mean, how often does that really happen? So that became interesting because in the Victorian, like, 19th century, I started looking this up and fear of premature burial had approached mm-hmm. a level of mass hysteria. Oh, yeah. And we talked about that with, like, the windows and the coffin. Yeah, and that's what I was trying to remember if mm-hmm. we had talked, because I was like, I feel like we've talked about mm-hmm. some of this before. Do right. you remember what the... what the? I want to say that the um, the pickled bride... Oh, you know, I we- think you're right. Some of that came up with, came up with her. Mm-hmm. So the fear of premature burial is called taphophobia. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, maybe some of it may have been in part because like Edgar Allan Poe was like obsessed with this concept. And he released, I think, four different stories about premature burial in the 30s and 40s, 1830s and 40s, including one titled The Premature Burial. (laughs) But the thing is, it actually happened Mm -hmm. like a lot. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a hype in the time of no modern medicine, no beep beep machines, you know. How do you check if somebody is dead? You know, it's like they, they may put a mirror under somebody's nose. Check Mm -hmm. your pulse. But, you know, if your pulse is shallow from illness, there are things that can easily get missed. Your heart rate could be very light. And we're in Kentucky and we know like across Appalachia, there are huge swaths of people that don't even have access to a doctor with any formal training at all. And there are some medical treatments that were common in the 1800s that are themselves narcotic enough to put a person into a catatonic state. I wonder if like... um the ritual of putting somebody like laid out in Mm -hmm. their parlor during this time and waiting like seven days or whatever it is before they bury them is part of like making sure that they're dead i feel like this it wasn't seven days rome actually there was a roman emperor that had put in a policy that you could not be buried before your eighth day of laying out because of the like the prevalence of burials alive. And we talked about like, yeah, what happens to the body, mm-hmm. you know, once it starts, once it starts to decay and like all the blood going to like the gravity pulling the blood to mm-hmm. the bottom. And and I think some of these were that some of uh, there were actually some illnesses that would mimic the rigidity of rigor mortis. Mm-hmm. And so there were times if a person had fallen, they would they may even be able to be laid out yeah. over that amount of time and still not be dead. But Is let's talk about smell. Now that, uh, yeah, you think because that would make a difference. you cannot be dead seven days, anything, mm-hmm. dead seven days without mm-hmm. having some gases and bacteria start right. to build up. Well, and though one of the things that, then this was the case in these stories about Octavia Hatcher, there's no refrigeration of bodies like you're talking about. Like you, yeah, you're going to have Kentucky. people laid out. It's Kentucky and it's in May and in the South mm-hmm. in Kentucky in May, it could be fucking hot. Mm-hmm. And they were in a hurry to get people in the ground. Because they didn't want to have to deal with the odors and the, I mean, because it also brings other health issues, right. you know. And so, you know, they they tended to put people in 
pretty fairly quickly. So I was like, well, it's not impossible. It's not even improbable Mm -hmm. that she could have been buried alive, whether there was a tsetse fly involved or not. Right. So in 1896, there was like, there was a book released by William Tebb. And the title of the book is Premature Burial and How It May Be Prevented with Special Reference to Trance, Catalepsy, and Other Forms of Suspended Animation. It's more than 500 pages long, Good and God. it is filled with news stories of people who were buried alive yes. or who just slightly oh, avoided buried being buried alive. And there's some weird ass shit in there. So there was one, and these are all quotes. Okay. This one was until about, f- <laughs> okay, I'll tell you the other one first. <laughs> the girl, there was a girl who a doctor was called for. Her name was Amelia Hinks, and she was only 12 or 13. And this one, I think, was in the uk and she had had some sort of a disorder and had been kind of slowly falling to it for three or four weeks and then she died and the body was put in a room like you know the laying out it was the body was rigid the body was cold it was washed it was laid out with all the you know rights and everything that you were supposed to do the lids were placed there were pennies put on the eyelids the coffin was ordered and it was more than 48 hours she lay under the sheet and then her grandfather who had just arrived for the funeral because he had had to travel went into the room to see the corpse and he removed one of the penny pieces and he saw it wink <clears throat> and there was like and he was like whatever happened that was movement like i don't know if that was a wink but that was a movement so he freaked his shit out went out and was telling other people about this and he was because i was like not prepared for this they summoned a surgeon who at first said that he was just suffering from deep grief and he imagined it. Such Um, gaslighting. (laughs) And then, but he, he used a stethoscope to ascertain that there was still slight cardiac pulsation. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's just a stethoscope. Like he could have used that this whole time. (laughs) And also I wonder like if you like, if you like take a pen and prick mm-hmm. like somebody that's well, dead, there were stories. Blood wouldn't come out. There right. were stories were of dead, people who be. had been pricked for like nerve response, mm-hmm. and it generally was a thing that you would cut an artery to see if someone would bleed to determine for sure well, hell, if they were dead or not. Make them dead if they right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the surgeon came in and so they nice. moved her into a warm room. And she came back to life. Oh, wow. She could talk. She described things that had happened in the room while she was being laid out for death. Um, she knew who had put the, the, the pennies on her eyes. Um, she wouldn't eat or anything. But she, like, she showed a lot of symptoms of like a weird kind of mania, like a, a, another neurological condition. But this was like, this story was confirmed by all of the family members who were in good standing in the community, other people in the community, like this, this really did happen. She wasn't well after that, but that really did happen. What mm-hmm. year was this book? Uh, the book came out in 1896. Okay. And this one was the one that cracked me up. I told Abby this story earlier today. So there was another Ooh. one that said that there was a family in Virginia until about 40 years ago. So that would have been what the 18, 1850, this Virginia family continued with this, this custom that they had created and they had observed it religiously for about 100 years because 100 years ago, a family member had died and been buried alive. Mm-hmm. They had exhumed. They had discovered that he had torn up. It's, and all the stories are the same. Like people tear up the, yeah. the fabric inside. They tear up their clothes. Oh, there are lit. like their fingers are some people just like their fingers are missing. I mean, it's disturbing. Yeah. 
I did find out through the internet that you can live for five hours in a in a coffin underground before you suffocate. I was like, that's what the internet is for, for this type of information. Information, please. Right I know, here. right? Said it now, living will. But so this family, over 100 years ago, they had had a family member that had been buried alive. And from that time, <laughs> everyone who died was stabbed in the heart with a knife by the head of the house. Oh, uh, shit. To make sure that they were dead oh my before God. a burial. And they did this until they stabbed a woman who was not dead <gasps> and killed her. Uh-huh. And I was like, this is not... <laughs> why was this a good idea? <laughs> like, so if you find the person who's not dead... The person is now dead, right? Like, this is a bad plan. Oh, my God. The bad plan, Virginia. I wonder if that's, like, kind of, like, vampiric. I know. That's what Abby said. Yeah, that's what Abby said, was that that was a common thing. If they didn't want somebody to come back, they would stake them before they buried them. They just wanted them to die, period. (laughs) But, you know, and like you were saying, people did patent because of this, not only the hype around the, the fear of being buried alive, but because of the actual, like, lots of cases of people being buried alive there were a multitude of safety coffins that were created little bells yes and there was there was one that was like this there was one that somehow had a ladder attached to it you know there were some that were just the simple bell where there was like a tripwire and Mm -hmm. if the hand moved the bell would ring and you hope somebody was around yes there were some that had like the window in the coffin which would be horrifying because you would just see a person slowly (laughs) decay and there was one that had uh like a a pipe that went up yeah the breathing one and but it it had all these mechanisms to it it was like there was a tripwire but it was not just a bell. It was like a full-on alarm that would sound if the tripwire sounded. And then if it happened, then this this little iron box at the end of the tube would flip open and air would start to circulate. And there was this little like feathery bouquet thing that would pop up on the top so that if people didn't hear the alarm, they would still see the feathers flying around in the air. Oh, <laughs> like, come open my grave. Now we're just buried with our phones. I know, right? Charger, right? And in, uh, <laughs> there was also in 1890, there was a Pennsylvania family who built vaults, like wall vaults, like we saw in New Orleans. That had interior hatches so that you could get Open out. And they were all lined with felt to stop people from hurting themselves if they woke up after being buried. Which I think just makes it way too easy for zombies to get out. <laughs> uh, I was thinking, though, that seems like the smart one of the smarter ones. I know. Or just like, yeah, I don't know. D- don't don't cover them with dirt if you're not sure yet. I know. Get, just don't close mm-hmm. the lid. Yeah. The way. Like, let them just get out. <laughs> I don't know. I know. So so while it can't necessarily be said that the story of Octavia Hatcher being buried alive is true, it can't necessarily be said that it's not Mm -hmm. because it's absolutely possible and there is just as a final note that coffin of james hatchers that was on display at the hotel they said that it had an escape hatch built into it i guess so because people say that he did have a lifelong fear of being buried alive So, if you want to visit octavia hatcher's grave and her memorial it is still there it's on cemetery road in pikeville it is on the campus of Pikeville University. Oh, that's interesting. So if you want to do it, you go into the campus and there's a little road. You can find it on Google Cemetery Road. And on the, on the side of the road, there's a fenced area that has some graves. I don't even know if it's an official. It used to be the Pikeville Cemetery, but it, I don't know that it has an official cemetery name anymore. It's just a, it's almost like in a median between two roads mm-hmm. on a hill. Right. 
but you can still go and you can go see her her memorial if you want to but be careful because they say also that it's probably haunted and if you want to hear the very few stories that we have about that listen to the patreon because i'll tell those after Nice segue. So Scary. good story, Marleya. Thanks. Thanks everyone for listening. We appreciate you and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye, y'all. Ooh, I like that story.